Obviously, we have to do something different, right? There's a lot of talk right now as we approach, you know, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 about these forever wars that we've had in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And certainly the war on drugs is a forever war. Uh, you know, we, we've been fighting it in, in South America, Central America and Mexico now, you know, for, for decades. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hey y'all, this is Christopher from Moraff reporting from Philadelphia. Breaking news regarding the opening of a supervised consumption site in Philly came down on the day we recorded the upcoming episode. If you haven't already heard, on Tuesday, January 12th, a three-judge panel from the Third Circuit Court of Appeals dropped the federal hammer and setback efforts by the nonprofit group Safe House to open America's first legally sanctioned supervised consumption site when it reversed a lower court's ruling that Safe House would not be violating the Controlled Substances Act by opening a supervised consumption site in the city of Philadelphia. In a two-to-one decision, the appeals court adopted a broad interpretation of a section of federal code known as the Crack House Statute that was added to the Controlled Substances Act in 1986 and makes it a felony to knowingly lease, open, rent, use, or maintain any place for the purpose of manufacturing, distributing, or using any controlled substance. Safehouse has long maintained that as an overdose prevention site staffed with medical professionals, its primary mission would be saving lives, not facilitating the use of drugs. The Third Circuit rejected that argument, writing in its opinion, quote, Safehouse's visitors will have the significant purpose of drug activity. True, some will visit Safehouse just for medical services or counseling, even so, Safehouse's main attraction is its consumption room. Safehouse officials told me that the ruling does not in any way put an end to their fight. While it may slow down the push for supervised consumption, it's just one battle in a much broader war, protecting the rights of people who use drugs. Unfortunately, that's not exactly the number one priority on most Americans' minds. It's probably best that this get decided in the courts. But who knows, maybe Joe Biden's Department of Justice will surprise us or Congress will sneak in an amendment to some law that exempts supervised consumption sites from the Krakow statute. There's still a bunch of moves that can be made from here. What's becoming clearer by the day, however, is that mainstream judicial and health systems are obstacles standing in the way of doing harm reduction, preventing overdoses, and saving lives. I'm happy to report that here in Philadelphia, at least, this work goes on, underground, in unsanctioned trap houses, shooting galleries, and back alleys across the city. The same thing is happening across America. So if you care about this issue, the one thing you can do is carry naloxone in your pocket. That's number one. The second thing is do everything in your power to make sure the person sitting next to you has it too. Because between the two of you, one of you just might save the other's life someday, or a third party you've yet to meet. If you're interested in learning more about this issue, go back and check out episode 31, in which we interview Abraham Gutman, an opinion writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and you can go to Filter Magazine and read my numerous columns on the subject. We look forward to seeing how this plays out. And now, on with the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Christopher Moraff, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today, we've got a really interesting interview with a great guest lined up for you. We'll be discussing Mexico's drug war, American foreign policy, and drug policy in general with Scott Stewart, a security analyst who for years penned one of the best annual assessments of Mexico's evolving cartels for Stratfor. He's since transitioned to Torchlight Global, a private security consulting firm. Scott's worked on the trenches of intelligence and security for 35 years. He began his career in Army Reserve and National Guard Intelligence, and he spent 10 years as a special agent with the U.S. Department of State's Diplomatic Security Service. During the height of the drug war surge under Ronald Reagan and then George H.W. Bush, Stewart was assigned to protect a Colombian judge who had signed an arrest warrant for Pablo Escobar, who famously killed many of his rivals in politics, including taking down a plane just to get one man. In 1993, he traveled to Bogota to help the government there investigate a car bombing at a school supply market. 
That work has given him an up-close view of national criminal organizations like drug cartels. His work analyzing cartels has been cited and quoted across the national media, international media really. His life and career is an interesting look at the drug war, the evolution of Mexico as a dominant narco state, and that's something we'll be talking about today along with the rise of synthetics. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. Also here are Nakataka co-hosts Troy Farah and Zachary Siegel. How are you guys? Doing okay? Uh, alive. That, that, alive, yeah, for sure. So, Scott, the U.S.-Mexico drug war has been going on for so long that it's easy to forget why it started and what its goals even are. Or I should say the U.S. drug war internationally. Mexico itself was kind of a backwater. We didn't really know Mexico for much more than its dirt weed. But at some point that changed and gave rise to the cartels like Sinaloa, um, Los Zetas, and, uh, you know, the the major cartels that are battling it out down there for dominance. In 2019, you wrote, uh, prison for El Chapo won't end the Sinaloa cartel violence or smuggling. Uh, for those listening, El Chapo is uh, Joaquin Guzman, the former leader of the Sinaloa Cartel, an international crime organization based in Mexico. Guzman was captured for the third time in 2016 and extradited to the U.S. in 2017. He was sentenced to life in prison in 2019. Scott, why don't you talk about how Mexico became such a dominant player from really a small the link in the in the uh, global war on drugs uh, back in the 80s um and what's you know going on there today yeah sure I, you know I, I think one of the things that we need to remember is that just because of its proximity to the u.s uh you know there, there's always been a lot of cross-border smuggling you know across the u.s mexico border and uh you know going back to prohibition times Obviously, you had alcohol coming north. Even before that, you know, you had guns going south uh, to Mexican rebels. You know, even in more recent times, uh, you know, in, into the, the 1900s, we had things like, you know, automobiles and, and even appliances, you know, kitchen appliances being smuggled into Mexico by criminals for resale because of the profit margins that they could make, you know, bringing stuff across the border. So there's really been a long history of, of you know, robust smuggling uh, across that border. As you mentioned, uh, you know, it did kind of morph into, you know, as we got into the, the 1900s, uh, kind of that, you know, that, that, that Mexican, uh, you know, brick weed or dirt weed. But because of those uh, those networks that were there, and, and really, especially in, in you know a lot of the big cities on the border, uh, you know, going all the way from uh, you know Tijuana to Matamoros, um, as we go from west to east, you, you just had these structures that were really primed uh, to be able to get into other drugs. It really wasn't a big deal on, in the cocaine flow until we saw that you know kind of the formal war on drugs during the Reagan administration and, you know, the very big efforts to crack down on the Caribbean corridor. Uh, you know, so this is like, you know, the Miami Vice days uh, when you had, you know, these go fast boats and planes bringing all this stuff in, you know, through, through the Bahamas uh, and, and dropping it in South Florida and, and really through maritime interdiction and, and really focusing on that corridor, they were able to kind of, you know, shut it down. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say shut it down. They, they really stopped the flow or, or, or lessened the flow. It's never stopped. There's always been dope coming up through the, the, the Caribbean. Uh, but still, the, these efforts cut off a lot of the flow. And, and that left the Colombians looking for you know, other ways and other means to smuggle their dope. And, and that's what brought them into contact with some of the then powerful marijuana cartels in Mexico, uh, such as the Guadalajara cartel on the West Coast. That later broke up and became, you know, these groups that we know, such as, as Sinaloa, Juarez Cartel, Tijuana Cartel. Uh, and then on the East Coast, we had the Gulf Cartel, which is, you know, still, we still have remnants of the Gulf Cartel on the East Coast. And of course, you know, many of their splinters, such as Los Zetas. And, and so it was really that, that need, you know, to find alternate ways to move cocaine to the U.S. that, that, you know, supercharged the Mexican criminals because the profits that they were realizing on cocaine were much larger uh, than what they were getting on the marijuana. And that just really gave them the war chests they needed to become very powerful, pay a lot of bribes, buy a lot of guns and gunmen. Uh, and, and that kind of brought them up to the, uh, you know, the Narcos Mexico on, on Netflix that we see. 
What is it about Mexico that's made it difficult for one or two um, dominant players to kind of consolidate the market the way Escobar did, and, and it's so balkanized? Um, what's unique about it as a state or about its drug, you know, its drug trade? Is it the is it the ownership of the plazas that, that where it crosses the border, um, or is it something more about like the geographical layout? Well, I mean, you, you do have that, that fragmented geography somewhat. And, and obviously that, that's one of the things that's made it difficult, uh, for Mexico City to exert control in the Sierra. Um, it, it's made it very difficult for them really in, in the northern deserts, you know, along the U.S. border. They're, they're, it's always been difficult to exert control over banditry and, uh, you know, Ill, illegal activity and even, uh, you know, rebels in, in some of these areas uh, over the years. But I, I think that, that really uh, we did have two major Mexican groups operating and they were doing pretty well and making a lot of cash. And, and what really splintered them up, uh, much like what we saw in Colombia, was, you know, law enforcement action to basically decapitate them. And uh, that's what, you know, we, you know, that's what resulted in the breakdown of the Guadalajara cartel was, you know, the DEA just declaring war on them after the Camarena torture and murder. And that then, you know, resulted in them splintering down and, and then they started interfighting. And then we saw the same thing happen with the Gulf cartel uh, after the arrest of Osio Cardenas Guillen. You know, it, it just it, it, it caused a lot of splintering as everybody within these organizations were fighting. Of course, you know, think about it overall, um, you know, even in organized crime in other places, whether it's, you know, Italy, whether it's the Balkans, uh, whether we're talking, you know, American organized crime, you know, in cities and regions, there's always a lot of, of greed. There's a lot of jealousy. Sometimes you have personal disputes. You know, somebody sleeps with somebody's sister or girlfriend or wife and, you know, then people die. So there's a lot of dynamics that can kind of drive that division. But, but pretty much it's greed that, that we see, uh, I would say, is probably the, the number one problem combined kind of with ego that's, that's driving, uh, you know, the violence and the splintering in places like Mexico. So this sort of like cut the head off the snake kind of tactic and approach has been the U.S.'s approach here. And back to what Chris was mentioning, you know, you, you wrote a piece in 2019 about why prison for El Chapo won't end the cartel violence or the smuggling. And so what is it about, uh, you know, jailing El Chapo or cutting the head off the snake that that fails to meaningfully change the trajectory of drug sales or, or trafficking or, or violence? Yeah, I mean, th th that's got really uh, several parts. First of all, the decapitation does have an impact on these organizations. Um, and, and one of the things that we see is it, it does tend to cause them to fragment and it, it takes them to the point where they aren't strong enough to really challenge the state anymore. And that's what we've seen in Colombia, for example. You know, in the 90s, early 90s, we had Escobar specifically at the point where he was challenging the power of the state and with force. Uh, you know, he took out the DOS building, uh, their, their internal security service, with the, with the dump truck bomb. He leveled a block, a city block. Um, so he was basically waging insurgent warfare in the Colombian capital against the cops. We still see, uh, you know, cocaine trade in Colombia today. It, it hasn't gone away. But, uh, you know, what's happened is, is you know, these groups are, are more fragmented and none of them are strong enough to really pose a threat uh, to the central government. And, and that's kind of the same thing we see happening in Mexico. Um, you know, the Guadalajara cartel and, and even the Gulf cartel, to a little bit lesser extent, were very powerful. And they could challenge the government's mandates, uh, you know, at least citywide or regionally. But certainly they were getting to the point where they were so influential. They had so many claws into even the, the federal government with bribery and such that they really did pose a threat to the government. And today the violence continues at, at terrible at a, a terrible rate. Um, but none of those organizations at this point is really strong enough to really challenge the government one on one. Uh, not even Sinaloa or the CJNG, which are the, the two big dogs right now. So it sort of fractures and splinters and weakens them at the kind of organizational level and kind of disrupts the hierarchy. And though, like the, I guess, 
that that's an effect happening on the ground in Mexico or Colombia or these countries. Though, how does the the business side keep keep going? Because like I don't recall after El Chapo there was like a, a drought of of black tar heroin or anything like that. You know, like like how does the 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 business and the trafficking kind of go on uninterrupted then? Well, the 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 strength of their their kind of organization is kind of also disorganization. You know, we talk about these fragments, and uh, so for example, you know, with the breakdown of the Guadalajara cartel, you had kind of you know the, these other mini cartels take over, uh, and basically most of the border uh, from Juarez over to Tijuana, um, and of course also controlled the grow areas in the Golden Triangle in, in the mountains. And, you know, they would either work together, um, sometimes at cross purposes, but they were still able to get, you know, not only the cocaine up and through Mexico, but then, you know, also we saw uh, the continuation of the marijuana cultivation. Then we saw the rise of, of Mexican heroin, uh, you know, which basically has dominated and, and currently dominates the American market. And then, of course, all these synthetic drugs that, that we're going to be talking about. But they're all involved in the trade. They all have their, their, uh, you know, contacts and their routes. And so it, it's, it's, you know, e- even within, for example, the, the, this, the Sinaloa cartel, uh, you know, we always think about them as, as one, you know, just total hierarchy, but it really wasn't. It really was a, a federation of other groups, lesser groups, uh, working together. It wasn't just El Chapo, uh, but you had other people, El Azul, you had El Mayo, the Valencia family, there were several smuggling clans, the Salazar, uh, these other clans, you know, in that, that Western portion that are very powerful, that were kind of united together under the Sinaloa umbrella, uh, but they all had kind of like their individual businesses going and they could cooperate, support each other and such. But taking down one of them or one of the leaders didn't necessarily wipe out everybody. Um, and so you still have, you know, the, the flow continuing, uh, despite taking out, you know, one kind of central person or central mode. Uh, you know, th- think about the, the Beltran Leva family was another powerful family, uh, that was involved under the Sinaloa umbrella. Guys like Ignacio Coronel. And, and so you had all these kind of players had their own businesses. You know, when you look at the, the seizures of, of, you know, big seizures of dope that happen, uh, you know, you see the bricks are often, uh, marked with different stamps you know, belonging to different families, different organizations within some of the larger organizations. Um, and so that's why even when you take out kind of one portion of that group, you know, the others continue to operate and, and do business. So rewinding a little bit, where does your work come into play, Scott? You're a longtime analyst and investigator. You were in the trenches in Bogota during the 80s, uh, tasked with a diplomatic security mission to protect a judge um, on Pablo Escobar's hit list. And that's some pretty, that's like straight out of a spy novel, pretty much. Um, And I assume there's a lot you probably can't discuss openly, but so our listeners can get a better sense of what you do. Tell us about your work and how it overlaps with national crime organizations in the drug trade. Well, yeah, actually, Troy, what happened with the the, the judge uh, detail, I was actually assigned in Washington at that time. I I was a newer agent, and and that was in in 1989. There was actually a very young female judge, um, and she uh, had the – I think she was 32 or 33 – and, you know, she was very idealistic just out of law school, and she signed that arrest warrant for for Pablo Escobar. The Colombians couldn't protect her, you know, and she was going to be whacked, and there were several judges who were killed. Uh, in, in Colombia for having dared, you know, to uh, work against Escobar. And so the Colombians decided they couldn't protect her. So they made her a diplomat and assigned her to the uh, OAS, the Organization of American States, Colombian mission in D.C. and said, here, America, now, you know, she did your bidding, uh, you know, p- put this uh, arrest warrant out for Escobar. Now you guys have to keep her safe. You know, for us, that was, a, a you know, a very tense detail. Uh, because of the price on her head. And of course, during that time frame, uh, you know, think about the late eighties, early nineties, uh, you know, that's when DC was kind of murder central, uh, in the U.S. It was the murder capital of, of America. We had a lot of gang activity and a lot of that gang activity revolved around crack cocaine. And so we had a lot of fear that, you know, basically Escobar could send a shipment of coke up to DC and trade it off to have her whacked. Uh, fortunately that didn't happen. And, and uh, boy, I've got 
hours of, of kind of weird, funny stories about uh, hanging out with the judge. She got pregnant uh, while we were protecting her. It wasn't any of us. Uh, it, it was her husband. <laughs> we, we had us taking her to the OBGYN appointments and, and the guys on the detail, we were all very different. And uh, so you'd have me, the skinny white guy, taking her to her OBGYN appointment one week. And the next week it would be my partner who is like this, you know, Danny Glover looking, you know, six foot five black dude. And, and we just figured that the doctors and nurses had to have been really confused about what was going on, uh, you know, there. Yeah, that that's wild. <laughs> wow. So I, I, you know, from, from there, like I, I you know, I, I'm sure there's, yeah, so many anecdotes and stories and, and as we sort of talked about off offline a moment ago that you're sort of like the Forrest Gump, you know, of uh, recent history in, in, in like you're finding yourself in all these crazy situations, like protecting a judge and taking her to the OBGYN. Like, yeah, that's, that's an interesting line of work. And uh, yeah. Well, in 93, you, you go back to, you go to Columbia. Is that your first, was that your first time there um, in country? Uh, no, actually, that was our. We had actually helped with a couple bombings down there, um, and, but the 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 ninety three bombing was kind of interesting. But for me personally, because it was kind of sandwiched between a couple other trips, I had actually come out of Yemen. Um, I did a trip over there looking at the first Al Qaeda attacks against the U.S. There again, Forrest Gump, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did uh, the Bogota investigation, and then I was assigned really for the next couple of years to the the Trade Center bombing uh, that, that happened in February ninety three. Uh, so it was kind of a very busy time for me, but, but it was really interesting. <laughs> One of the kind of crazy things that we found, uh, we helped the Colombians do the, the crime scene investigation of the bombing. And, you know, especially at that time, you know, the Colombian National Police uh, just weren't ne- necessarily as well trained as they are today. They're, 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 pretty, they're pretty good today. And they've had, received a lot of U.S. training uh, you know, in investigative techniques, you know, back in those days, basically their investigation uh, would be kind of like some national police, uh, you know, like Colonel rolls up to the scene, smoking a cigar, looks at it and says, oh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, 200 pounds of dynamite and walks away. And then somebody writes that up. That's their you know investigative report. Uh, but we went down to kind of help them and, you know, help them with some techniques. Uh, you know, so we're running around, you know, crawling through the crater, uh, you know, picking up pieces of the device. And to try to help them figure out, you know, how it was constructed, what the components were. And actually, one of the cool anecdotal things out out of that that investigation is that we were able to determine from pieces we found, you know, when something explodes, it just doesn't vaporize. Um, It'll break things up and hurl them sometimes at a distance, but they, they don't disappear. You know, if you do a careful examination of a bombing, a lot of times you can find components of the stuff that was actually used. Uh, you know, think about that, that little fragment of the circuit board from Pan Am 103, for example. But in this case, we found some components that belonged to Futaba aircraft, model aircraft remote control sets. And so that allowed us to conclude and determine that basically Escobar's Sicarios who, who were conducting these bombings in Colombia and they would go on to do some others were, uh, you know, using these Futaba remotes to complete the circuit and, you know, detonate their devices. And the good news on that, uh, I guess from an investigative standpoint is there was only one shop in all of Colombia that sold those sets. And so we were able to kind of get the, the cops going in the right way to finally track down and, and arrest the, the bomb maker within, uh, well, probably another year or so they were able to track him down, take him off the street and kind of end the wave of bombings. What was like the motivation for these kinds of bombings? Like, like about power, obviously, but can you get into sort of like what would lead a a drug trafficking organization to, to do what amounts to terror? Yeah, it really was narco-terrorism. You know, one of the the major motivations for Escobar was that he feared being extradited to the United States. Uh, You know, it's it's kind of funny now that, that, you know, uh, we we see guys like El Chapo and Aseo Cardenas Guillen, you know, living out that that nightmare. But that that was basically, you know, one of the huge demands uh, was that they did not want to be extradited to the United States to face U.S. justice. They wanted to stay, you know, if anything, if they were going to be arrested, they wanted to stay in Colombia where they could have those very comfortable prisons with their private chefs and girlfriends and, you know, luxury suites. 
Would you say the, that Narcos was a fairly adequate, um, uh, true-to-life portrayal of those times? Um, did you watch the series? Yes, yes and no. Um, I mean, the, the, I, I think any time that you, you, you try to do something for, for television, you have to say, take some dramatic license. I think in many ways they were true to the, 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 how should I say, the spirit of what was going on, but they had a lot of factual inaccuracies as well. Um, and, and especially I noticed that in, in uh, Narcos Mexico, um, just because of kind of things I understood and, and knew were going. It was great for TV, but some of the stuff just didn't happen like they portrayed it. Can you give like an example of that? Uh, well, I mean, they, they had uh, certain individuals being executed and killed who, who weren't, you know, people who ended up going to jail um, and, and they showed them being executed kind of blatantly because it was good TV, you know. Yeah, I haven't actually watched the show myself. Um, you know, so the overdose crisis and drug problems uh, domestically in America are framed very differently than they are in Mexico and other Latin American countries. And I think it's kind of important to get beyond a U.S.-centric look at the, quote, drug war. Um, the main casualties of the drug war in Mexico are not from drugs per se or people using drugs and overdosing, but rather from bloody, violent skirmishes over turf and who controls trafficking routes. And journalists are often targeted a lot as well. Can you put into perspective how deadly Mexico's drug wars are, how many people are killed and disappeared by these organizations? And journalists are often targeted, as, uh, targeted a lot as well. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, you know, you talk about kind of the, the, the you know, the narco terror. That, that's definitely part of it when it comes to journalists in Mexico. Um, I, I would push back a little bit on the... Uh, I guess the concept that addiction is not a problem in, in Mexico. And I believe that, that, I mean, it's always been a problem, but I think it's becoming more acute, especially as we're seeing breakdowns uh, in the big organizations. And we're seeing a, a lot of uh, the transactional stuff that's happening as, uh, you know, people move dope through plazas, for example, instead of paying in cash, they may p pay people in kind, and so uh, there's a lot of use going on right now south of the border, and it is becoming a growing and very, very significant public health issue in Mexico and, and not and, and not just in Juarez, uh, you know, not just in Reynosa or, or, or Matamoros, uh, but but also, you know, places like Monterrey, uh, places like uh, Guadalajara, places like Mexico City. Um, so it, it really is uh, an, an increasing issue in Mexico as well. Yeah, I uh, certainly wasn't trying to imply that addiction and overdose isn't a serious issue in Latin America and Mexico, only that the media sort of hypes the violence. But that's a good perspective to have. How, can I talk to you a little bit about how cannabis legalization in the U.S. has had an impact on, on drug trafficking and stuff like that south of the border? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things, it, it's been interesting because obviously as you get higher quality weed in in, in the U.S., kind of the, the demand for kind of the skunky Mexican stuff is not as high. Uh, but still there are people, uh, you know, that, that don't want to spend the cash for the good stuff. And so it's, you know, there, there's, there's, it's still coming over the border and we're still seeing them bring that. One of the interesting things I've been looking at though, for the last couple of years has been kind of the increase in, in them kind of boiling down into like hash oil, and kind of the, 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 the THC concentrates for vaping and such, um, as kind of a way to adapt to changing kind of appetites in, in the U S market. And so we're, we're, you know, we're definitely seeing the Mexicans becoming much more involved, uh, in that. And, and some of that, there's also connections and kind of tie-ins to the legal, uh, you know, kind of cannabis market as well. I've seen some reporting, that, that indicates that, you know, uh, basically the, the Mexican cartels have put a lot of money into the legitimate cannabis industry in the United States as well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like you need a lot of capital to buy into the legal cannabis market. And I've always wondered, like, you know, there's tons of venture capital flowing around the U.S. And I've always wondered, yeah, like, is some of this money uh, funding capital to buy into the legal market, like, Surely some of it has come from the underground illegal market, I suppose. And I haven't like definitively seen evidence of that, but it stands to reason that, that some of that money is for sure propping up the legal market.
Yeah, there's also interested in getting their hands uh, on the Mexican organizations, getting their hands on some of the hybrids that are being produced here, um, some of the technologies that are being produced here uh, to kind of help their own industry and kind of the 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 growing and burgeoning uh, kind of designer marijuana market in Mexico as well. Um, you know, places, these, these, you know, urban areas with, you know, the upscale clientele, they don't like the, the nasty brick weed either. So, so, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of kind of flow there. Maybe this is a, a good pivot over to like synthetic drug production because agricultural drug production, like growing fields of poppy, like that's becoming obsolete in the face of illicit fentanyl and fentanyl labs, uh, presumably in Mexico, cranking out these weird fentanyl analogs that then get, you know, mixed into various powders uh, in cities around the U.S. And that's really what's driving so many overdose deaths these days. And and so it's like between these factories producing methamphetamine, which is also synthetic, you don't need sunlight or fields of plants and land and you don't have to pay farmers and and all that so how is like synthetic drug production just kind of changing the the game uh in in mexico yeah you know i i I talked a little while ago about how you know cocaine was was a a game changer for the cartels and really you know gave them a lot of funding and, and a lot of resources to grow and really become more dangerous and bigger we really saw the same thing happening with initially methamphetamine and there again, not, not just because of the fact that you don't need, you know, people to grow it or space, crop space, but because of the profit margins, you know, the, the profit margins were, were just astronomical. And so the organizations that were the kind of the, the early adopters of methamphetamine had a very big competitive advantage over, you know, their rivals. So we saw like the Colima cartel, for example, the Mesqua brothers, Ignacio Coronel, the king of crystal. Uh, these guys uh, were really making a lot of cash for Sinaloa early on. And that gave them a competitive advantage over the, you know, the people they were fighting against. And that's really, if you look at kind of the emergence of uh, meth in Mexico and, and that market and the money it provided to Sinaloa, there's a pretty direct correlation really to their offensive operations to take over plazas on, on the border because, you know, they initially really, they didn't have anything for themselves. So we saw them initially try to take Reynosa away after Ocial Cardenas Guillem was arrested. They made a push. They sent the, the BLO, uh, Beltran Leva organization guys up to try to take Reynosa. And we had this big border war uh, erupt in Reynosa. Things went crazy. Um, and, and that was all, you know, basically funded, uh, by these profits, uh, you know, from this new profit center, uh, this new profit pool they had, uh, they made a push on Juarez, uh, they made a push on Tijuana. And so they were very aggressive. And a lot of this aggression was funded by these resources they had that they were generating from the Colima guys, from Ignacio Coronel, uh, et cetera, as they were, you know, uh, making all this, this meth. And of course that then, caused their rivals to start cranking up uh, synthetics. And, and, you know, it's not just something anymore that one cartel is moving. Uh, You know, almost every organization of any size in Mexico right now is pushing meth because of uh, the profitability there and, and, you know, the power that that gives them uh, and the ability that gives them to, to wage war against their enemies. Um, Scott, uh, I, I had a DEA source once tell me that, that it was the crackdown really on production domestically of meth that sort of pushed uh, these super labs to, to develop in Mexico and overseas. So, A, I guess the first question would be, you know, is, is that an example of, you know, a domestic policy uh, platform in the U.S. war on drugs, you know, creating uh, an perhaps even worse in, in his in his assessment, the, the price went down and the quality went up um, when it went below south of the border. And second to that, I would ask if you've um, heard or have any evidence of any um, uh, collaboration between, you know, Chinese uh, triads and and Mexico, uh, Mexicans, Mexico's cartels um, in the precursor trade. Is there, is there any kind of alliance that you've uncovered or anything you can tell us about uh, Chinese organized crime and its role? 
Okay. Uh, so uh, first answer for or first question first. Yeah. Um, just as we saw the, the kind of the, the war on drugs in the Caribbean corridor, send Coke into Mexico and, and enrich the cartels that way, the Coke flow from, from South America. That's exactly what happened once we went into, uh, you know, California and Oregon and started shutting down the, the labs there, uh, especially, you know, places like the Central Valley of California. That just really, uh, you know, sent the production south of the border and really ramped things up. So absolutely. And, and as you say, not only did we have prices go down, but purity and strength went up at the same time. And, and that was linked to like the pseudo-Fedrin ban, right? Also, that, that was, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all linked. Um, and, uh, you know, now that also ties in now to, to China. And, at, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, that, that this was going on, we, we had these, these, you know, uh, kind of alliances and deals being made between, uh, Mexican cartels and Chinese organized crime. Uh, and, and they just started shipping, you know, large quantities of, uh, meth precursors into Mexico, uh, to, to fuel these super labs. Uh, initially we were seeing a lot of stuff out of, of India as well. Uh, but the DEA put a lot of pressure, um, and, and, they were able to kind of not, not shut down, but curtail, if you will, a lot of the Indian supply of precursors. Uh, and, and so that just left China as probably, you know, the main source of, of precursor chemicals. Although we've seen stuff coming in from Europe and, and elsewhere as well, South America. But, but still, the, the Chinese connection has been a very, very uh, long held one, a very important one and, and very lucrative uh, for everybody. Uh, do you guys remember that, uh, 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 what was the guy's name? Zhu Longji or whatever that, that was arrested in, in Mexico City with like the hundred million dollars in cash in his house. I, 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 I heard that story. Yeah. A hundred million in cash. Like I think I saw pictures, like it took up the whole basement or something. Yeah. It was, it was, it was crazy. And, and that was just one guy, just one supplier to one cartel. And, and you know, that, that just kind of shows how, how big and how lucrative that, that trade is. Uh, for everybody. Another thing that where, where Chinese organized crime has really helped uh, the Mexican groups has been in the way of trade-based money laundering. Um, and and it, it's pretty amazing, you know, in, in a lot of traditional money laundering schemes, you know, kind of black market peso exchanges, that sort of thing. The groups that were seeking to launder the cash and, and you know, to, 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 you know, get it out of the U S and kind of repatriate it back, to their home country generally would have to pay money uh you know a percentage on the cash to, to get that done and to get it back uh, and so you had these bankers and others you know making a lot of money um you know doing the laundering one of the interesting things that, that has happened with the trade-based money laundering out of china has been that uh it has allowed these mexican groups to use their their cash from the u.s to buy counterfeit luxury goods uh, and, and other stuff out of China uh, that are then shipped into Mexico and sold in Mexico. And then they get the money back. They get the cash back, uh, you know, that way by selling the goods on the street. And interestingly enough, instead of losing money uh, in, in many of the trade-based laundering uh, schemes, they're actually making money. In fact, I had somebody uh, with a, a very good knowledge of this tell me that basically the markup, on counterfeit Nike sneakers, by, you know, that the Mexicans were bringing in uh, through trade-based money laundering in Mexico City was higher than they were getting on cocaine going to the U.S. What? <laughs> Selling Nikes? <laughs> Luxury goods, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, that, that, that goes back to, like, selling the kitchen appliances, like, back in the early 1900s or whatever. Like, this stuff is, is just, like, we're, we're just kind of trapped in this history, aren't we? Yeah. And, you know, the, the, yeah, they're, they're very entrepreneurial, uh, you know, and, and even aside from things like the, like the, the apparel and the, you know, the, the, the Gucci bags and that kind of stuff. Uh, they also were big into software piracy, DVD and, and CD piracy, even, you know, like counterfeit elect, uh, electronics, you know, fake Sony's, you know, fake Rolexes, all this kind of stuff. And they were making money off of all of it, uh, which is actually pretty ingenious if you think about it. You know, they're not only making money moving the dope, but then they're making money getting their money back out of the U.S., uh, you know, through this trade-based money laundering. 
One thing I've heard that's really interesting is the legal trafficking of avocados. People make fun of people for having avocado toast or whatever. I think they're delicious. Uh, I live in Southern California, so we get them pretty well. But thinking about where your avocados come from and how it could have been smuggled by a cartel or something is an interesting thing to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there again, when you talk about them, you know, uh, you know, they, 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 these cartels have so much cash. And, and they've generated so much that they, they've had to have places to put it. And, but they also invested because, you know, they're smart money people. And so a lot of these resorts, quite frankly, that you're seeing in places, whether it's a Riviera Maya or whether it's places, you know, uh, Puerto Vallarta, wherever, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, resorts are, are, are funded, you know, to, to, to launder drug money. They've, they've invested in legitimate farms. Uh, they've also, though, at the same time, um, we have organized crime groups really, kind of put the squeeze on legitimate farmers and, and you know, uh, and it's not just avocados. Of course, that's kind of a famous thing because of, of Michoacan and, 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 you know, the Tierra Caliente area, but also things like, uh, you know, other citrus farmers uh, who, who are raising uh, products that are used in soft drinks, you know, things like Coca-Cola, et cetera. Those people have been squeezed really hard in some places. Uh, they basically, either been extorted out of business or just basically had their farms and businesses subsumed by organized crime, uh, who's now carrying it on and, and profiting, uh, you know, from the businesses these people worked hard to, to set up. It's, it's really very tragic. Scott, you mentioned Al Qaeda earlier, and um, you know uh, Yemeni. You, you were in Yemen uh, early on. The the ideological uh, foundation of you know Islamic terrorism would seem to be um, anti drug. One would think, but but I think as time has gone on, there's been more of an immersion of, of narco terrorism and um, Islamic terrorism. I, I know that there was uh, there's a theory that that some. Uh, synthetic cannabinoid money uh, flows back to the Middle East where it's used to fund terror operations. Um, I don't know how much truth there is in that, um, but uh, ha- have you seen um, sort of a confluence of these two two types of terror um, evolve over the years? Well, probably more so with the Marxist groups, uh, as, you know, specifically in Colombia, where, where you know, the, basically the FARC have become a cartel. Um, the ELN, these other groups are all cartels now. And, and, and certainly the, the Taliban, uh, for example, in Afghanistan has become a, a, a huge manufacturer of, of heroin, uh, you know, for, for a large portion of the globe, especially in Eurasia. And now they're, be, you know, becoming to or starting to manufacture more and more methamphetamine. Um, so, you know, there, there definitely is, you know, you mentioned the Captagon. Uh, and, and these other drugs that are tied into places like Syria and Iran. Um, and, and certainly, you know, Al Qaeda in Iraq has been involved, uh, you know, with, with drug smuggling. Um, so, the, you know, the, the, there definitely is involvement. I mean, Hezbollah, for example, Hezbollah has a huge illicit uh, drug network uh, that, that's all over the world. And they're involved in everything from hashish, and heroin to like, you know, selling counterfeit Viagra in Detroit. So those guys are, are just kind of everywhere and have their tentacles in things as well. But kind of the, the idea, uh, you know, and I've, I've, I've heard a lot of, of, of people talk about over the years, the idea that like the Mexican cartels would like partner up with, you know, these terrorist groups like Hezbollah or, uh, you know, Al Qaeda to smuggle, you know, weapons and fighters into the U.S., I, I, you know, I, I just totally discount that because it would be terrible business for the Mexicans. Well, first of all, they saw what happened to Escobar, right? They, they don't want to be Escobar. Secondly, they also understand that they want to have sustainable business. And yeah, they, they could get a, a little bit of cash from smuggling, you know, I don't know, a team of 20 guys or a nuclear weapon or something across the border, but that would end their business. Uh, it, it would be bad for business and, and it, it just, it's not sustainable. It's not something that, that they're really interested in. Um, so, you know, we, we had a case uh, several years ago where we had a guy uh, from Texas from, I think he was from Round Rock or San Antonio, somewhere around Austin there. Uh, this guy, our Bob CR traveled down uh, to Nuevo Laredo looking for a hitman. And he was looking to hire Los Zetas 
uh, because he figured they were like the baddest dudes in, you know, in, in, on the continent and wanted to hire Losetas to assassinate the Saudi ambassador to the United States. And he had been put up to this task by the IRGC, the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And, uh, you know, the, this Iranian plot was, was kind of nipped in the bud because basically the cartel guys dimed him out to the DEA. Uh, they're like, wow. we don't want anything to do with this. Uh, then he ended up meeting with the DEA informant and the whole plot was crappy. Um, but that's a crazy story. You know, the Mexicans don't want to mess with real terrorism. Yeah. Uh, you know, so like framing this question, it sounds like it's a conspiracy, but it's just like, you know, people drawing lines and noticing trends. And, and so in, you know, the, the sixties and seventies when the U S invaded Vietnam, there's that story of huge heroin shipments coming back to the U.S. And, and there was a heroin boom, not just among soldiers in Vietnam, but among citizens um, in, in the U.S. where heroin was coming from like the Golden Triangle and, and such. And then people also noticed that starting in the early aughts and around the time of the invasion of Afghanistan, we also then see this heroin boom and there's, you know, images of, of soldiers guarding poppy fields in Afghanistan, or there's like a this 2010 story from the New York Times that's like about the U.S. turning a blind eye to, to opium farmers and in sort of for diplomatic reasons, letting opium farmers in Afghanistan continue to grow for I don't know why, but can you sort of talk about that? Like, like, like when you're presented with these parallels between like, you know, the countries we invade and what we bring back, um, what do you make of that? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that, that definitely, I mean, one of the other thing to think about is just the, the personal point of it. Uh, you know, there were a lot of American soldiers, you know, tens of thousands of them, you know, in, in Vietnam, hundreds of thousands of them. And, and certainly a percentage of them did get hooked and did get exposed to, you know, both marijuana and heroin while they're over there. And so then a lot of them brought those addictions back to the U.S. Uh, probably not some small number of them uh, figured out that they could make money by, you know, fueling the addictions of others, you know, supplying the addictions of others. Um, and, and so, you know, we had, but, but at that time, we definitely, you know, saw that flow was coming from Southeast Asia, uh, predominantly uh, the heroin into the U.S., I would, you know, in in, in the aughts, um, we're, we're seeing, especially specifically in the United States, uh, our heroin supplies not coming from Afghanistan. And, you know, the vast majority of Afghan heroin today ends up in Eurasia, a lot of it in Russia or, or you know, Eastern Europe, and it, it doesn't necessarily make it here. So I don't know if there's that that, you know, direct parallel, but certainly, you know, where we have people you know, travel abroad, pick up addictions and, and, you know, bring the, those addictions back. Um, you know, that, that's certainly going to be a connection. Yeah. So you're saying like that because the Afghanistan poppy and heroin, like that's not really making it all the way to the U S that like that kind of parallel that the, just like when people are drawing these lines, like that one doesn't necessarily stand up. No, but, but certainly I, I do think that there's a, a, uh, I, there again, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. One of the things that has made it uh, difficult to clamp down on the, the flow of synthetic precursor chemicals from China has been kind of a Chinese attitude of, uh, you know, let's give it to the Americans. Uh, look what they did to us with the opium wars. A reverse opium war, right? Right. Exactly. Payback. You know, some, around 93, 94, Southeast Asia just drops out as a player in the heroin trade east of the Mississippi River. And Colombia pretty much takes over in what it seemed to be a bloodless coup. And, you know, um, and I, I, it's always 
it's been mysterious to me why that happened, although I, I have attributed it somewhat to the, the regrowing of poppies in Colombia after this coca era and and a lot of the coca trade had been, you know, at least diminished with, with the, uh, the demise of the Medellin and Cali cartels. Um, but, you know, suddenly uh, poppies are being grown again in Colombia and Colombian heroin invades the East Coast. And I've, I've had this sort of pet theory that, that synthetics is, you know, Asian criminal organizations... Um, you know, it's their it's their you know offensive to get back some of the business they lost then um, because pretty much all the heroin east of the Mississippi River was was Southeast Asian in the eighties and 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 early nineties, and Colombia then just takes over as the dominant player, and now it's been pushed to Mexico, and and I guess maybe you could speak to what what did the Colombians have, what would be in in their invested interest in in teaching, as I understand they 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 sent you know. To, to teach them how to make purified white heroin, um, what and what would be their incentive? Well, I think for the specific cooks that did that, it was you know strictly monetary. They were being paid to come up and, and you know teach them how to make uh, you know the the, the white heroin. Um, but I, I think that you're, you're pretty right on the dynamics, and I I believe that one of the the factors that that allowed the Colombians to kind of capture that huge market share was the fact that due to proximity to the U.S. And due to uh, just the, the the lack of of multiple middlemen, that a lot of the heroin that was coming in from Colombia was stepped on less, and so it was basically better and cheaper than what was coming in, uh, you know, from Southeast Asia. And and we've seen the same thing happening really to an extent with Mexico. I mean, the, the stuff that's coming in from Mexico is you know is very good, very strong, and, and pretty cheap. Um, so you know they kind of have a competitive advantage being closer, less of a supply chain, and, uh, you know, producing something that, that people want at a, at a cheap price. We talked a bit about the coronavirus and, and how it's affected our lives and before we, we went live on, the, on the air here. And um, yeah, I was going to ask you if you've, if you've seen any um, diminished or, or, or change in the trade uh, cross-border as a result of um, the pandemic. Uh, that's, yeah. a, that's a great question, you know, whether or not the pandemic has had much of an impact. Um, and I have a little bit of a personal axe to grind because we had people coming on in, you know, April and May, uh, people talking publicly, uh, saying that, you know, the pandemic was going to be the end of, of the Mexican cartels and they were going to collapse because of this. Uh, and, and that, that concept is ridiculous. And, and quite frankly, it has been borne out by what we've seen. Um, due to history, the Mexican cartels have proven themselves to be exceptionally agile, creative, uh, and flexible and in everything from, you know, where they get precursors from to the types of drugs they use, how they smuggle them. Um, you know, they're just very creative, very flexible, very resourceful. Um, and so certainly, you know, we look back now almost a year, uh, it, we can say for, for certain that, that it has not caused the Mexican cartels to collapse. As we look at, you know, just even the last couple of weeks, you know, they continue to wage some pretty nasty wars down there between themselves. You know, Guanajuato right now is, is just a mess. So they have not collapsed. We're not seeing any sort of, of reduction uh, in, in, you know, the seizures uh, in Mexico or even, you know, in the U.S. We're still seeing very large seizures of synthetics and, and things like fentanyl have been way up uh, because that's kind of the, you know, the new profit pool for them has, has been fentanyl. Um, so we're really seeing that increasing as more and more organizations across Mexico adopt it uh, because of the profitability, just like they did meth earlier. Um, so we're seeing almost all these organizations moving meth, moving fentanyl, still moving, you know, their traditional drugs. We're seeing that, you know, the heroin, the, the cocaine, the marijuana. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the COVID uh, pandemic has not stopped them at all. It's just changed how they, they move stuff because it's changed how commerce moves. So maybe, you know, wrapping up and, and piggybacking off this, this last point about how durable and agile and creative and frankly ingenious some of these organizations are. The, I think about the, the decades of, of U.S. drug policy and, and is there any approach far from all-out war that can take 
drug production and manufacturing and sales and trafficking and all that out of the hands of cartels so other than, you know, legalize and regulate. That That's something I hear often where people are like, if we just legalize and regulate the drugs, that'll put the cartels out of business. What do you say to that argument? I, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, we have to do something different, right? We're, we're, you know, there's a lot of talk right now as we approach, you know, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 about these forever wars that we've had in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And certainly the war on drugs is a forever war. Uh, you know, we, we've been fighting it in, in South America, Central America and Mexico now, you know, for, for decades. But that said, I, I don't know if legalization in itself will end it because, you know, quite frankly, even the legalization of marijuana hasn't ended, you know, the cartels, uh, you know, marijuana, uh, it, it's changed it, but, but it hasn't ended their marijuana business. Uh, you know, they adapt. I, I do think we need to think about creative ways uh, to address this and, and specifically, quite honestly, on the demand side. You know, I, I really see this as being an economic problem. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot, you know, huge law enforcement facet, but economics drives it. it you know, it, it's the economics. As long as Americans or Canadians, you know, other North Americans are willing to spend, you know, large quantities of money to buy these substances People are going to find ways to get them here to sell them to us. I'm not saying abandon the supply side uh, fight, uh, but but really, the, I, I believe the key is on the demand side. I think we all sort of agree with that, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, we, we've talked a lot about the supply side during this talk, and, and it's a fascinating topic. But I think on our end, uh, reporting on this for years, I, I, I also agree that that addressing demand and the conditions that drive people to desire substances um, has to be at the forefront. And, and I like my own personal take on this is like drug use and altering our consciousness has been part of being human as a species for as long as we've had a historical record. So I, I just don't see how how we can stop people from from wanting to use drugs because it's so foundational to to being human. Um, interestingly, that we talked about COVID for a bit um, when when the stay at home order was instituted in Philadelphia, um, the demand like it it wasn't let's address the demand of why people are using drugs, but there there wasn't enough money for people to buy their drugs. You know, they just, they, the hustles were, were disappearing. And, and I, I talked to dealers who were selling, you know, 60 bundles a day, that dropped down to 10. I heard stories of corners, like sort of grabbing people walking by to their competitor and making them buy from them. Um, it was, it was, a, a, it was, it was a, it was a demand side, um, imp, you know, impact, but, uh, it, it, it just had to do with, you know, no, no, I, I don't think it was long enough. And certainly people started getting pandemic money, uh, in, within enough, a short enough time and it probably didn't have any impact on, on, on a, on a scale that it would affect, uh, international trafficking. But, um, it, it certainly affected local, local trafficking here on the ground, local sales. Uh, well, Scott, I guess that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, you know, really appreciate you coming on the show, giving us a lot of insight and, and your backstory. Is there anything else do you want to mention? Anything else that you want people to know about about uh, this topic of you know international drug policy? Well, yeah, I think it's you know the, the important thing is to that we we really look at you know as you guys have been saying, going back that whole supply chain and just seeing kind of the the death and misery and destruction uh, that it has. And right now, as we see, you know, these organizations fighting for primacy in Mexico, um, just the, the the carnage that is being created due to our appetites here in America. And, uh, you know, it, it's really sad to see, you know, the consequences, you know, of, of these illicit markets. Um, and, and certainly, you know, just out of, out of uh, I guess, just, you know, consciousness or out of, uh, you know, humanity, we really do need to find better ways uh, to combat that. I, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. Um, but but certainly, you know, we as as a nation um, and, and we as Americans really need to find a, a better way 
uh, to end this demand so that we can end just the carnage and, and suffering uh, that our illicit appetites are causing in these other countries. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we don't have the answers either. I think, you know, part of that is bringing up the issue and raising awareness so that people can be aware of this. You know, even illicit appetites are driving so much suffering in the world. You could talk about our demand for oil or electronics, you know, that are mined, the raw materials of lithium and, and cobalt and stuff like that that are mined using child labor. You know, like, that's not illegal, but <laughs> I think America is really having a reckoning right now, and we need to take a long, hard look at all of the things that we are consuming, legal and illegal. No, that's a great point. Well said. It's a beautiful world, and I don't want to see our appetites destroy it. Uh, well, thank you so much, Scott. Um, uh, where can people find you? Well, guys, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, uh, my, my, my company uh, is uh, Torchstone Global, uh, and uh, you, you can find us at that website. I actually write uh, columns for the watch section of, uh, of our website. I have a lot of stuff there on kind of personal security, staying safe, uh, you know, how threat actors work, stuff like that. So there's a lot of good things that, that people can see. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter, I'm, uh, my, my handle is at stick631. Um, and if you're interested in kind of international affairs, I, I talk a lot about, you know, Mexico, Colombia, uh, uh, you know, other things. Uh, I look a lot at drugs in addition to kind of crime and terrorism. Great. We'll post all those links for sure. Awesome. Thanks so much again for coming on. Absolutely. It was great talking with you. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. A big thanks to our patrons over on Patreon for making this show possible. We have a growing list of supporters and we really could not do this show without them. So thank you guys so much. And if you like what we do here, maybe you would consider joining them. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy, additional music is by Chandeliers, and I'm your co-producer, Garrett. Give us a like and a follow wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to spread the word. It's really fucking cold in here. I'm going to go around. Have a nice night.